Morning, everyone. Great to be here today. If you turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 2, if you're using the Bibles on your chair, it is found on page 222. I need to make a slight correction from last week. That's always a good way to start the, for the intern to start talking. Uh, it's pronounced chesed, not hesed. And I needed to say that now so then I don't say it during the sermon. Um, so we will be reading in Ruth chapter 2. And if you would follow along with me, I'll just read the whole chapter before we start. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field and uh, and after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they said, The Lord bless you. And Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapmen, or who was the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came. She continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one. But keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink with what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to the people that you did not know before. The Lord repaid you for what you have done, and a full reward to be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some of bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied. She had some leftover. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young man, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and, what it, was, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, 
she had brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close, to, close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young woman, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth that we see in your word in Ruth 2. I pray that you will speak through me, that this will not just be my words, but ultimately you speaking through me. I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and how we ultimately find our identity in you and you alone. And I pray that we remember this in our sermon today. In Jesus' holy name, amen. If you were to take a moment and look at culture today, you may have noticed that we have a tendency to want to better ourselves. And it's, simply, it's as simple as looking on Google and typing how to be a better you. And that would probably confirm your suspicion. Or you might only have to go through Barnes and Noble and stroll through the aisles to see what qualifies as self-help these days. Or, on the other hand, you might not think you need to be a better self. You might just want to live with who you are. Consider the famous show Seinfeld for their season finale, where we watched the gang go overseas, and they were watching a man being mugged before their eyes. But did they help him? Or did they call someone for help? Or did they do anything that would be considered helpful by our standards? No, instead, they joked about the man's weight, and they were filming the whole crime as a joke. And you might stand in judgment of Seinfeld now, but you don't realize that you face that same battle of identity. Because in all of life, we either want to better ourselves and be a better you, or we just want to live with who we are. You either idealize being better, or you just tell people that they just need to accept who you are and they need to shut up and suck it up. You may be tempted to leave this discussion at a surface level and not realize that there's actually deeper questions being asked here today. Because all of us hopefully see that this question of identity is more important than an episode of Seinfeld. Because the question that pop culture, that dieting, that self-help books actually asks is this, who are you? Do you actually care or should you care about what other people think of you? Is your identity really found in what people say about you? If you go on the internet and if you were to judge yourself by what you do, you probably even see this. The more likes you get on Facebook, the more liked you are in person. And we have descended into a culture that now we simply post the pictures of our food 
on Instagram just to be liked. In reality, all of us here thirst and thrive for finding our identity. And truly, we are all asking this very question of identity, of being better or just living with ourselves. In fact, this identity crisis is no modern invention because the defining question rings throughout history. What makes you, you, has baffled philosophers, confounded poets, and has silenced every scoffer. And this question actually has eternal relevance when we consider it in scripture. Because these questions of identity, these questions of who we are, is actually also found in the book of Ruth. We find our very questions in the backdrop of Ruth too. Even after Ruth has just declared that the Lord is her God and that Naomi's people are her people, it's not that declaration that continues to define her, but it's actually her cultural identity that stands out. In fact, this question, we see that our identity has eternal relevance before God's eyes because our questions of attention, our questions about being better, our questions about identity are found in scripture today. So look with me again at, verse, at chapter two, and we will see in the opening chapter, or the opening verses, our questions, or actually Ruth's question of identity as a Moabite. Because we have just left Ruth making that declaration of faithfulness to God in chapter two. But even with what she said last week, we see Ruth's reality in chapter two right now. In the opening verses, Ruth must go out into the field and work. And this isn't some part-time job she's trying to do. She is simply going out into the field to survive. Look at verses two and three. And what do you see there? You see an impoverished foreign woman that is simply working just to have food on the table. Everything in this story is upside down to what our idea of success would look like. Because Ruth and Naomi have lost their husband, they have essentially lost their insurance policy, and they need to work just to have food to go to the next day. But even look closer at these verses. And even though we just heard Ruth say back in chapter one, your people are my people, and your people and your God is my God. What defines her isn't that, but actually her identity as a Moabite. It's almost as if the author is continually reminding us, don't forget that Ruth is a Moabite. And the Moabites would be the most unpopular people in Israel right now. Her identity as a Moabite seems to be the greatest refrain throughout Ruth 2. For both Ruth and Naomi, there seems to be little hope for any idea of redemption. And in fact, if we were to workshop the book of Ruth right now in a creative writing course, this is where we would see the rising action of the story, where everything seems to be falling apart in their lives. Everything for Ruth and Naomi is hopeless to ch in chapter two. We have two impoverished women. One of them is forced to go out to work for food, and they have no husband to take care of them. The beginning of chapter two disrupts any idea of hope for these women. But that is until we look 
at verse 1 again. In fact, read with me that first verse. Because it says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Even in the women's hopeless situation, the author gives us a glimmer of hope. The significance of Boaz's relationship to the family is not that he's related to Naomi, but that he is related to Elimelech. And because he is related to Elimelech, he can actually redeem these women from their poverty. Although they seem hopeless at this time, Boaz can actually be their kinsman redeemer and marry Ruth and pull them out from their hopelessness. Ruth finally has this opportunity to escape this life through Boaz. And look closer at the text. Look at verse 4 with me. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And that behold there is almost like the author is clapping his hands in our face and telling us to wake up and pay attention, to stop, to stop droning off because this is important. And even that verb there, that Boaz came from Bethlehem, we can translate it as he was coming, as an ongoing action. It's almost as if the author here has taken us from a bird's eye view of the story to now we are watching the film play out before our very eyes. But that is not all we see of Boaz in the narrative today. Because look at what Boaz does with his workers. He greets them. He isn't painted as a terrible landowner. We see his religious nature in his greeting, the Lord be with you. These verses are designed for us to see what a catch Boaz is. And at the end, Boaz asked his young man, who is that young woman gleaning in the field? And we finally begin to see the beginning of Ruth's redemption. Because now, turn with me to verses 8 through 16, and we see Ruth's identity with Boaz. Beginning in verse 8, we see exactly what Boaz is planning on doing. He tells her not to glean in another man's field, he tells her to stay with his own workers, and he promises her, her protection from men in the field, and even promises to give her drink or water to drink while she's working. Boaz is actually going beyond any Jewish expectation that the Israelites would expect of him, because if we turn earlier to the book of Leviticus, chapter 23 and 22, it tells us in uh, it says, and when you reap the harvest of your lamb, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the, for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Because Boaz was actually, and all the Israelite owners were expected to take for the poor, the oppressed, the beaten down. But in this story, in verses 8 through 16, Boaz is going beyond even that expectation. It's almost as we're looking here, like we're watching an episode of The Price is Right, and Bob Barker has come back from the grave and said, tell her what else she won, Boaz. It's a brand new car. <laughs> but even going on beyond that passage, we also see more than just that. Because look at verses 14. She goes with Boaz for a meal. And she eats until she is full. She is satisfied. She is promised more food when she leaves. 
For the first time in all of the book of Ruth, things are finally looking up for Ruth and Naomi. If you were in this situation at this point, it's almost like you have just been looking for food and you have just received a meal plan. Yet even with this provision of Boaz, and please don't miss this point, because in verse 10, we see exactly what Ruth's response to this situation is. Because look at verse 10 with me again. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? What is the grounds for why Ruth thinks she's undeserving of this? Because of her cultural identity, because of where she came from, because she thinks that she is an enemy in enemy territory. The Moabite refrain, the fact that she is called Ruth the Moabite, continues to chime in throughout the book of Ruth. The author continually is reminding us here that don't forget, don't forget, don't forget that Ruth is a Moabite. But our problem here is we may be too quick to see the irony of this story because you sit here today and you think of this beautiful story of identity and you forget that you stand right next to Ruth. I doubt anyone here is a young, impoverished Moabite woman, but you ask the same exact questions that Ruth is asking in our story today. You define who you are by where you come from or at, examine every point of life by your past. For some reason, you think that your identity has been set by where you come from. And that this is even a stupid question for me to be asking right now. You say to yourself, I cannot change what family I came from, what life I chose, what associates I have been with. You may honestly see yourself as a foreigner in enemy land. So because of this, you begin to idealize what and you wish what could have been or who you could have been. If only I was rich, if only I was popular, if only I didn't have that one stupid flaw. Instead of looking at yourself, you look to other people for answers and you try to live in their shoes. You wish that you could be someone else and your identity becomes what other people look like. You want, if only you could just look like him, or talk like him, or act like him. But listen closely here, because I had an undergraduate degree in English, and I took a class that I'm sure all of you would love to take called Modern Poetry. And I myself struggled to even understand what any of those poets were saying. But in that class, there was one poet named Edward Arlington Robinson, and one of his poems still stands out to me today whenever I start to wish to be in other people's lives or other people's times. Listen closely to this poem by Edward Arlington Robinson. Minifer Cheevy, child of scorn, grew lean while he assailed the seasons. He wept that he was ever born, and he had reasons. Miniver loved the days of old when swords were bright and steeds were prancing. The vision of a warrior bold would set him dancing. Miniver scorned the gold he sought, but sore annoyed was he without it. Miniver thought and thought and thought 
and thought about it. Minivershevi, born too late, scratched his head and kept on thinking. Miniver coughed and called it fate and kept on drinking. Your identity and your success will never be defined by what other people do. Because every single one of you at this moment, right now, today, is facing an identity crisis. You identify yourself and you define yourself by who you are, by your own standards, or by what other people's standards are. You either think that your identity is inescapable, or you try to set your identity by bettering yourself or just by being yourself. Every last one of us stands next to Ruth in our story today, because both then and now, we all have the Ruth the Moabite refrain. And you can take whatever title you want there. It can be Ruth the intellectual, Ruth the liar, Ruth the Republican, Ruth the Democrat, Ruth the blankety, blank, blank. Whatever you want to define yourself by. And the list will keep going on and on and on. So where do we go from this point of the story? Where, where is our hope in all of this hopelessness? If I can't change where I came or who I am, then what happiness is there in Ruth 2? Look again at the end of our story today, beginning in verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Boaz said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man, in close the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth, the Moabite, said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to my young women until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with this young woman, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Strange to see at the end of this story that we are reminded of where Ruth came from. It almost seems like an innocuous detail, a flourish of the pen, or a mute point at this stage of the narrative. But I don't think it's unimportant that we're reminded that Ruth is a Moabite here, because where is the provision coming from at the end? Look back at what Naomi just said. Blessed be the Lord who has shown his kindness, his steadfast love, his hesed to Ruth and Naomi. Because Ruth and Naomi, they have not just won on the price is right. They, just, they haven't just won a giant prize. They have won a promise of redemption 
for themselves. The reason why the author calls Ruth a Moabite here is to remind us that it had nothing to do with what Ruth came from, but because of who God is. Because they have a kinsman redeemer now who can pull them out of their hopelessness and redeem them from this hopeless identity crisis. And the buck doesn't even stop there because Ruth would receive a kinsman redeemer and we would see that her line would go on to receive the greatest king of Israel, David. But God's steadfast love isn't just in the story of Ruth because she was actually able to belong to a covenant community. And look at yourself. You share that same identity crisis that Ruth and Naomi had, and every moment of your life is defined by it. You think that your past defines who you are, but when we look at Ruth 2 today, we see that the very point of this whole passage, the very command that we're given, the whole thrust of Ruth 2 is this. Praise God for his steadfast love because our identity is found in him and him alone. And here's the grounds for why I can say that and why that even makes sense for me to say. We all have a greater redeemer than Boaz. We have eternal hope beyond a temporary fix and that doesn't just provide us provision or shelter, but one that provides us eternal life. God answers your identity crisis in Jesus Christ. Because look back at the book that we just studied a couple months ago in Galatians chapter 3, where it says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. All of us here are identified by who we are, and we all act like we are characters on Seinfeld. Yet, looking to just be ourselves, but because our identity is found in who we are, it's not that we walk around saying we are Ruth the Moabite, but Ruth the sinner. All of us face this identity crisis. And you can read all the self-help books you want. You can watch all the episodes of Seinfeld you want, but you will always be defined by who you are, and you cannot escape this hopelessness of your situation. But in Ruth 2, we have the remedy to every complaint of our identity. Because of Christ's sacrificial death, you can belong to God himself. And all your pains, all your mistakes, all your failures are forgiven. You are all on the prices right, right now. And God doesn't offer you a temporary prize. He doesn't offer you a prize behind door number one or door number two or door number three. He offers you a prize that you didn't even think to ask about. That is eternal life. And because of that offer of eternal life, we can actually say with Paul in Romans 8, where Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us all, how will he not also with him give us all things? And because of what Paul says there in Romans 8, he goes on to what is considered the crescendo of the whole Bible, where he says, no, 
In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ruth faced an identity crisis in our narrative. And she finally found her identity and being able to belong in the covenant, the covenant community through Boaz. But thank God that we have our own kinsman redeemer because our identity is no longer found in who we are, but what Christ does for us. What, when I have put my faith in Jesus Christ, I am not John the sinner, but John the saved. And only when you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Redeemer will you ever be able to find lasting identity. Stop trying to define your life by what you can do for yourself. You will find lasting forgiveness and identity at the foot of the cross. And today, God offers you the ultimate kinsman Redeemer who gives us our identity named Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you that ultimately all our questions of identity are answered through your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that we will be able to lean on you and lean on your steadfast love that you show us every day. I pray that we will not try to define ourselves by what good things we can do for ourselves, but what you have done for us. I pray all of this in your son's holy name. Amen.